0: About one month ago, I was a guest with many parishioners from the cathedral, about 20 actually, at AME Shorter Church. The occasion was a local nonprofit that that we work with here at the cathedral, especially our group Faith in Action, was hosting this event at AME Shorter, which was a kind of um, close look at something called show-ups. Together Colorado was there, The Denver chief of police, Paul Pazin, was there. Representatives from the mayor's office was there. Representatives from the Denver City Council. And although there were some disagreements here and there over details, everyone there, from whatever office they were representing, agreed that this problem of show-ups was indeed a tragic problem. Long story short, here's what a show-up is. When the police present a witness or a victim of a crime, not with a lineup where they can pick from the lineup, that's who did it, but just one person. They show up with one person, and the victim or the witness can say, that's who did it. Sometimes the police show up with someone in the middle of the night, right before the the, the victim, when something's just happened a few hours ago, and say, is this one person, is that who did it? And unsurprisingly, all objective research shows that this practice aggravates racial bias and for many other reasons is really largely unreliable except in extreme cases. The conversation in one sense couldn't have gone better. The chief of police, Paul Pazin was really impressive and thoughtful, really listened even where he disagreed. He has a close working relationship with Together Colorado and thanks them for their, their witness and their, their vision and their research. The representative from the Attorney General Office was was wonderful and thoughtful. And everyone left AME shorter with broad agreement on changes that would be made. And for me, it was a kind of especially in this political climate we live in, it was a kind of miracle. You know, I wish that every square inch of this country could work like that, where we really listened and thought together and came out of a complex situation with some simple things that we know we can do all together. It was also a bipartisan conversation and prayer and thought. And that is a good thing, especially in this day and age. The part of the night that really got to me, however, was when a young man named Charles Battle II spoke. Charles is 18 years old, an African-American, attends one of our local high schools here, and last year was a victim of one of these show-ups. He had been out walking in his neighborhood doing nothing wrong. He resembled who the person who had gone through the the, the crime, who'd been victimized, he resembled the person who had done it. The cops pick him up. They take him to the victim, and from 50 feet away, she says, that's the one. And then for six months, Charles Battle II was either in jail or a detention center or going in and out of courtrooms for six months until finally... They released him and said, You're innocent. We know you're innocent. He told his story. He was an incredible storyteller. And he described in vivid detail what that whole traumatic experience was like for him. It couldn't have been more compelling. And, and he had this prepared outline in his mind and a manuscript for who he was going with his talk. It was incredible. And then at the end, you could tell he was just kind of done. He didn't have anything really left to say, even though there was more on the manuscript. And he just stops and says, you know, I, I, there are no words. I don't even know what to say. And he just sits down. Then, two or three speakers later, his mother gets up and talks. She was and is, she's in battle, a prophet. She spoke with fire and feeling. But what she talked about that surprised me was not the experience of going through that with her son. She didn't have to do that. He had done that. What she talked about instead was this, that what she as a mama noticed for six months trying to get her son out of all that business was this, that there were so many teenagers in courtrooms in jails, in lawyer's offices that had no one with them. No mother, no father, no lawyer, no preacher, no community standing around them. And here's what she said. Their isolation and grief and trauma is our isolation, grief, and trauma. And Almighty God expects more of every single one of us in this room. We've got to do better. This is our family. And she spoke with fire and feeling. I sat there and I had a lot of thoughts, but one that I just still can't let go of is I sat there and thought, you know, that kid, Charles Battle II, is 18 years old, which means he was 17 when it happened, which means my kid's the exact same age. My son is the exact same And I thought about how we've raised our children in three successive towns and states, Decatur, Alabama, Memphis, Tennessee, Denver, Colorado, and not one night, never has there been a moment, never, where I worried about my child being picked up by the police and misidentified. Never crossed my mind to even consider that that could happen to me. And of course, I didn't think about anybody else. On the second Sunday of Advent, the prophet John the Baptist always shows up. And I am convinced, and more and more convinced, that we will not recognize, let alone understand, the prophet John the Baptist. Unless we recognize and listen and understand today's prophets. They speak always from the wilderness. Sometimes they're loud enough that we don't have to go to the wilderness to hear them. Sometimes we must go to the wilderness to hear them. On the surface, these prophets look very different. The wilderness changes. It changes in terms of race. It changes in terms of gender identity. It changes in terms of you name it the political issues, the wilderness is different each time. But deep down, deep down, it's always the Spirit speaking in and through these prophets, and there's one clear and simple message that every single one of them says, and the message is this, you better turn around, you better repent, which is what repent means, turn around. You, you better go in a different direction. And your words and your actions, you might pretend that you don't have power. You might pretend that you can't make a difference. You might pretend that you can sit on a fence and just watch it all happen, and you're fooling yourself. Your words and your actions matter. And when and if... Prophets stop speaking in declarative sentences, and they rarely do. (laughs) They basically ask one question. Every one of them, one question. Are your words and actions relieving suffering? Are your words and actions relieving suffering? I've been a priest now for 18 years, and, and every year, someone at the door says to me, after a, a biblical prophet has shown up in the lectionary, um, someone says to me at the door, you know, I, I'm not a prophet. So it's just, it's a, it's a lot. And I'll be honest with you. I, I've actually said on a number of occasions about myself the same thing. I'm not a prophet. I'm a little more pastoral. We need to be circumspect and deeply careful about saying that, even thinking it. And for two reasons, first, at every baptism, all of us say the baptismal covenant and every single one of us, if you follow the script, says that we promise with God's help to strive for justice and peace among all people. We all say that, it's an ordinary, normal thing. It's not just the prophet's job, it's the baptized job. But the second reason might be a little more subtle and and maybe even closer to a live nerve. And it's this, one never knows, one never knows what might happen in one's life that in a blink of an eye that would turn oneself into a prophet that would speak with fire and feeling to the powers that be. One never knows What might change tomorrow for any one of us? And our voice will sound entirely different. It's the season of Advent, and we sing these incredible hymns, and the music's so beautiful, in part because of these minor chords and just just all the, God, the pathos that goes into all of this. It's a season of preparation. It's a season of longing. It's a season in part of preparation for the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ, maybe most obviously at Christmas, within human history, not just on December the 25th this year. And the coming of Christ at the end of time, on the other side of death, whatever unimaginable reality is is over there when we cross over. And it's a preparation for the coming of Christ between those Two events between Christmas and our own deaths. Christ coming in the ordinary. Christ coming in the sacrament. Christ coming in joy and justice. In the stories we tell. The relationships we, we share between birth and death. In other words, Christ might show up at any moment and shock us with unimaginable Truth, beauty, justice, and love. So, as we turn around, as we repent this Advent, as we turn around and face a new direction, however dramatically or humbly, however loudly or quietly, one does that. And we all do it in different ways, and we all should. But however you do it, however you turn in a new direction, as we turn, let us expect to be surprised, which is a paradoxical stance that will prepare us for the one whom we seek.